You're listening to the PFWC podcast with me, Carly Compton, a podcast created to help you learn strategies to overcome that bully inside your head, ways to practice self-love, awareness and understanding of eating disorders, how to embrace the body you have been given and develop a healthy relationship with food, exercise, and most importantly, yourself. Here at the PFWC podcast, we find it important to create a safe space and a place for individuals to come to learn how to create that lifestyle that works for them. We're dropping comparisons, fighting unrealistic beauty standards, and coming together to show the world that all bodies are beautiful and that healthy looks different on everyone. Sit back, relax, and get ready to grow together. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the PFWC podcast. I am so excited for today's episode. I am sitting down with Christy Harrison, an anti-diet dietitian and author of the book Anti-Diet, uh, which we will talk a little bit more about uh, throughout our conversation today. Christy is someone who I have looked up to for so long. I've been listening to her podcast and following her, her on Instagram for a long time. Um, she's helped me in so many ways in terms of my recovery and my relationship with food. I've just learned so much. And so I'm really, really excited to have Christy here today to be able to chat and learn even more from her. So welcome Christy. Thank you, Carly. It's a great introduction. Thank you. Um, so I would love for you to just tell us a little bit about yourself um, and just a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Yeah. So as you said, I am a registered dietitian. I'm a certified intuitive eating counselor. I'm also a journalist, and that's where I got my start. Uh, back in 2003, I started my career as a journalist and had my own eating disorder and you know, had really gone through most of my life up until that point without any eating issues, having thin privilege, you know, the privilege of being born into a smaller body, not having anyone criticize my weight or interfere in my relationship with food. So I was really an intuitive eater up until the age of 20. And then I went and studied abroad. I changed birth control pills, gained a little bit of weight. And suddenly it was like off to the races with dieting and diet culture and all the stuff I had learned about food and bodies from diet culture just kind of came rushing to the fore. And I started dieting and it quickly spiraled into disordered eating. And so that's kind of where I was when I started my career as a journalist. And so naturally being so obsessed with food because I wasn't eating enough of it, I became really attracted to reporting on food and nutrition. And because I was having unexplained health problems due to the restriction and the deprivation and the disordered eating, I was also really attracted to reporting on health. So those mm -hmm. kind of became my beats. And uh, I got really interested in, I was also like an environmentalist and, you know, had had those values for a long time. And so I was really interested in like organic and sustainable food, got really into like the Michael Pollan thing of, you know, eat too much, eat food, not too much, mostly plants was like mm -hmm. his whole refrain, you know, that has kind of launched this wellness trend that we now see in the, uh, the 2020s, but, you know, and in the 2010s as well. But so, you know, I was very much in that world of like sustainability, eating local, organic, trying to, you know, also like going gluten-free because that was mm -hmm. a thing back then, you know, early, early days of gluten-free. I was putting myself on ever more restrictive versions of the gluten-free diet, writing about them and kind of fanning the flames of that trend and spreading that trend to 
the population along with many other fellow journalists. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, I was really in it. You know, I was really like just in it with disordered eating, but also I was writing about food. And so I think that kind of helped save me in a way because I was exposed to lots of different foods. I was friends with lots of foodie people and people who sort of challenged me and, you know, got me to be more adventurous with food. So that was like a little bit of a exposure therapy, actually. And mm -hmm. I also did regular therapy. I did like, you know, one-on-one -on -one psychotherapy every week and for years didn't even really talk about my eating issues, but finally opened up to my therapist about them around the time that I went to grad school. And I decided to go to grad school in nutrition, you know, to get my master's in public health nutrition and my registered dietitian's license because I wanted to like be the next Michael Pollan. You know, I wanted to have yeah. the credentials to write books, like actually kind of be the Mar next Marion Nestle really because she's like a PhD and, you know, wrote a lot of books that were really influential to the Michael Pollans of the world. And um, so that's kind of, you know, who I was modeling my career after. And I went and studied with her at NYU and got my master's in public health nutrition and my registered dietitian's license. And at the time when I went back to school, the goal was like, end the quote unquote obesity epidemic. You know, mm -hmm. I was very much bought into that language, that rhetoric and thought that I was going to help save the world because I definitely have always had this kind of social justice activist -y side of me. And I thought that that's how I was going to do it, you know. Mm -hmm. And luckily, when I was in grad school, I was also working on a book. I started working on a book proposal for a book that I never ended up writing. But 10 years later, it became kind of the jumping off point for anti-diet. I used some of the research that I had done for that book to kind of uh, bolster some ideas in anti-diet. But at the time I was writing, you know, the book was conceived of as a cultural history of emotional eating and wanting to kind of delve into what this concept was, why do, you know, because I identified as an emotional eater at the time mm -hmm. and why do people identify as emotional eaters? It's such a thing. Like, has it always been a thing? Where did this idea come from? And in doing that research, I discovered one, the research showing that diets lead to binging and diets, you know, restriction is what drives emotional eating or so-called emotional eating. And two, I discovered the book Intuitive Eating by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. And that was huge for me because, you know, it helped me understand that what I had been doing all those 20 years before I tumbled into disordered eating was intuitive eating, that it was a thing and that like actually it was a positive thing, you know, and, and it started me kind of the, down the long road to reconnecting with intuitive eating and recovering from my disordered relationship with food. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, brought that information, that book and the self-help work I was doing on food into my personal psychotherapy. And I think that was really like the start of the the healing in earnest because then we were able to start, you know, my therapist had already been doing a lot of work with me around self-compassion and mindfulness and getting out of my head and into my body. And so the intuitive eating work just kind of fit so naturally with that that work that we were already doing and I think really took it to the next level. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, through that, like that was early in grad school and I was still I, I was working for the city department of health. I had jobs there for three years throughout most of my school, most of my long process of getting my master's and registered <laughs> dietitian's license because I didn't have any of the prerequisites done. I had majored in rhetoric as an undergrad, so I had to do all these like sciencey prerequisites. So I was there for a long time and I had to have a job because I was a returning student. I was like 
older than a lot of the 18 year olds that were in classes with me. And so um, I had to, you know, I was, I was working the whole time and I worked at the city department of health in their nutrition policy programs and community nutrition programs. And some of what we were doing, you know, some of it was great. And I love the people I worked with. And I think, you know, overall I had such a positive experience there, but some of what we were doing was diet culture, you know, and, mm -hmm. it, and it is for anyone who I think is trained and steeped in um, dietetics programs or nutrition programs or, you know, we're, we're just by default kind of doing diet culture as dietitians unless we learn about another way, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I was kind of enacting, you know, pretty diet culture-y um, advice and rhetoric with the people that I worked with, you know, with the um, participants in my community nutrition programs. And then I worked with different like hospitals and schools and stuff for nutrition policy and was kind of handing out very diety advice there and um, which I now regret. You know, I, I think those programs have done a lot of good and they've, you know, there's ways in which, um, you know, at least the people that I saw and interacted with kind of took that advice in a disordered way. Mm -hmm. And I started to see that with like the people in my nutrition education programs who were like my top students, quote unquote, the people that really like loved what I had to say and were engaged in every class and came every week and stuff, you know, I started to see that they were doing things that were like eerily similar to what I had done in my disordered eating days. And mm -hmm. that was the first kind of red flag that like, okay, maybe this intuitive eating thing isn't just for me. Maybe this is something I can use with clients and patients in the future as well. And you know, so over time I started to kind of build up that cognitive dissonance. And then I decided I really wanted to get back into doing something creative and journalistic, but specifically around talking about people's relationships with food. And so that's when I started my podcast, Food Psych, mm -hmm. in 2013. And um, with that, I also started to get training in eating disorders because I realized, like, I want this podcast to be a resource for people with disordered eating, and I probably should get some training and and start specializing in this area and was really, like, attracted to that idea. And with that training, I started to learn about health at every size. I started mm -hmm. to learn that intuitive eating is the gold standard for recovery, that that's kind of what we're helping people get back to eventually, of course with an eating disorder or disordered eating, you're so far away from intuitive eating. It's like this kind of polar opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah. But that the goal is always to get people back in touch with their internal wisdom about food, to have food be just an easy, pleasurable thing that they don't have to like obsess over or think about so much. Mm -hmm. And so learning that was just, you know, kind of the final light bulb for me. Like, oh, this thing that I found so helpful in my own healing, in my own practice, and that I've been doing for years already, this is the thing to teach people who are healing and recovering mm -hmm. from disordered eating. And so that's kind of what led the focus of the podcast to become, you know, health at every size and intuitive eating. That's what really shaped the course of my career and what I ended up specializing in in my private practice and continuing on to write anti-diet, you know, now a year and a half ago. <laughs> so <laughs> wild to think that or no, a year ago, I guess, uh, is when it came out. And yeah, so that's, you know, sort of what brings us to where we are today. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, so much going on with everything that you said and so much that I relate to. Um, and I think it's so great that you were able to kind of 
be in the position that you were in, in terms of, uh, being in school, um, becoming a dietitian and seeing the disordered eating that was happening. Um, because I've talked to a lot of, a lot of people, um, a lot of dietitians who still aren't able to see that. Um, and so would you say that it's, it was your experience with your relationship with food that allowed you to see that really that disordered eating that was going on, um, within the dietitian field? Um, or was there something else that maybe helped you to see that? I think there was a couple of things. I think primarily it was my own experience and just mm-hmm. sort of where I happened to be in my recovery at that point. Cause there was a moment I'll never forget in training to become a dietitian one class we had to do like physical assessments and it was like you know weighing yourself measuring yourself we we went around the room and like stations to you know the scale the calipers the height mm-hmm. measurement whatever and had to like calculate our ideal quote unquote ideal body weight based on our like skin fold measurements and things like that and it was just horrifying mm-hmm. and everybody seemed tense you know all my classmates i think were struggling with it to some degree because we were like weighing and measuring ourselves in front of everyone. Mm-hmm. And then we had to like partner up and say, you know, what our ideal weight was. And when I did those calculations, I found, and you know, I've since learned that these calculations are so obsolete and arbitrary and like don't really account for the diversity of body sizes and aren't mm-hmm. aren't great. You know, they're sort of outdated, right? The, the Especially the way that we were doing it was outdated and, um, you know, what I found was that my supposed ideal body weight was like the lowest weight I had been in my eating disorder. Cause mm-hmm. I never, you know, it was, I never was emaciated, but I was like very much weight suppressed for me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, shit, I don't know if I can swear. Sorry. No, go for <laughs> I, uh, it. Yeah. So it was like, shit, like this is like a, you know, sort of fork in the road. Right. Because mm-hmm. I could go back to what I was doing before to get to that weight. And I know that at that point I knew it was unhealthy, right? I knew it was not good for me. And I had learned enough in dietetics to know that what I was eating was restrictive before. And, you know, at the same time, I was like, I want to embody the the dietitian. Like, you know, I want to be a quote unquote good dietitian. I want to have the quote unquote ideal weight so that, mm-hmm. you know, I can teach my patients how to get to their ideal weight, right? So there was this tension. And then the other side of me was just like, fuck it. Like, this is not real. This is not Mm -hmm. helpful. This is not, you know, good for me because if I had, if I could only be that weight as an adult through these really restrictive and disordered means that led me to binge, that led me to feel out of control with food all the time, that led me to, you know, I was like lost my period for a year. I had all kinds Mm -hmm. of other health problems. You know, it was like, that's not, that's not healthy. That's not good for me. And so I had the sort of light bulb moment there to just be like, well, I'm going to throw that out. Mm-hmm. Don't know what that was, this so-called ideal weight, but I'm just going to like keep on doing what I'm doing. And I think that's much more beneficial to my well-being. Yeah. I'm certainly not recovered fully at that point at all, but I think mm-hmm. that was like a huge key for me to seeing how messed up the world of dietetics could really be. Yeah. And I think that's something that at least in my experience and a lot of, a lot of people that I've talked to who have, um, struggled with eating disorders, that's something that is so common is that thought or that feeling of like, well, according to my BMI chart, 
the size that I was in my eating disorder is what considers me healthy, um, quote unquote healthy. Um, and I think like the most, it's so important and something I'm really passionate about is debunking and spreading the truth about BMI chart. Um, because we know that it's incredibly inaccurate. (laughs) It's completely outdated, all of those things. Um, but I think what I've found to be the most common question from people is, well, why, why, why aren't we using the BMI chart? We've been told for years to use the BMI chart. We've been told that this is how we accurately, um, measure our health. Um, so I would love to hear how do you answer that question? Um, when it comes to BMI chart? Yes, such a great question. I think it's it's helpful to look at the history of the BMI chart and sort mm-hmm. of what it was intended for and what it ultimately became. And it's very political, honestly. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it was started by this, it was created by this uh, guy who was, he was like an astronomer and also like a mathematician and a statistician, Adolphe Quetelet, back in the <laughs> 1800s in Belgium. And he wanted to just see what the distribution of body sizes in the population was and if there was gonna, if there was any sort of formula that could like predict that you know so it was a statistical exercise it was not meant for any sort of medical purpose mm-hmm. i don't know the story of why he chose like height and weight if that was just sort of an easy thing to measure and if he had chosen i don't know like eye color distribution or something like that maybe we would be in a very different place <laughs> um but you know, he chose height and weight. And so he he developed this formula for um, determining, you know, someone's body mass index. But at the time it was called the Ketelet index, right? The, after his name. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Ketelet index was really just a statistical tool that then insurance companies and their sort of burgeoning, um, the burgeoning life insurance industry actually in the early 1900s got a hold of that. And because they were looking for different ways, you know, insurance actuaries are always looking for ways to predict risk, right? And to say like, who's at greater risk? Who do we want to give a policy to? How much should we charge based on what their risk is? And and at the time, the only people who got life insurance were like wealthy white men. Mm-hmm. And this Ketelet index was one thing that they started to try to use to predict risk and started to see that, you know, the the men, the wealthy white men in their cohort, um, if they were at the higher end of this BMI chart, tended to have higher risks for, mm-hmm. for death, really. It was, you know, life insurance. So it was really just about death. Um, and that started then the, the health insurance industry also kind of came on the heels of the life insurance industry. I don't know, like, all the details of how they developed, but I know they were sort of in tandem around the, the turn of the, ni- the 20th century. And, um, you know, so the the health insurance industry also started to look for ways to determine risk and got a hold of that Ketelet index. And at some point it was rebranded as the body mass index. I think it was the 1970s Ansel Keys, who you may know from the Minnesota starvation experiment, this really um, fascinating experiment that we use a lot in eating disorders research and, you know, to kind of explain the effects of starvation on the body. So he's mm-hmm. done some cool things like that. He's also done some not so cool things like he did this <laughs> horrible country called a uh, study called the seven countries study. And he also did um, kind of rebranding of the BMI. He was part of leading the charge for turning the BMI into more of a clinical instrument. And, um, you know, it was never intended to be a clinical clinical instrument, right? And I think, I, you know, I'm 
forgetting my history now because I'm like deep in historical research for something else and <laughs> my brain only has room for so much history. But mm -hmm. I think even at the time that it started to be used in healthcare, it was considered kind of a population level measure and then got twisted into this clinical measure sometime around the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And it, it was, you know, again, never intended to like diagnose or treat any condition, right? It was never intended to say someone at this, uh, you know, an individual at this point on the BMI chart is less healthy, that you should try to be in this other part of the BMI chart. Mm -hmm. It was just a descriptive, it was descriptive statistics of distribution of body sizes in the population. And if you look at, at the BMI chart at the population level, there are some, you know, potential uh, um, conclusions to draw from that, right? And and that's, you know, not to say that weight causes poor health, but people at the higher end of the BMI chart do tend to have higher risks for certain health outcomes, mm -hmm. likely because they are more likely to experience weight stigma and weight cycling mm -hmm. and poverty and disordered eating and all of these things that we know are independent risk factors for health, right? Mm -hmm. Weight stigma alone um, is a greater risk to your health than what you eat. Weight cycling mm -hmm. alone can explain all of the excess heart risk for people in larger bodies, according to research. And so, you know, looking at those things as the potential causal factors, actually, rather than saying um, body size or body mass index is the causal factor. You know, there's just a correlation between higher body weight at the population level and poorer health outcomes. And it's likely because of all these other factors that mm -hmm. have nothing to do with weight itself. Um, but, you know, when you take it down to the individual level, when you say, oh, your BMI is X and it's supposed to be Y, and so you need to lose weight to get to Y, mm -hmm. well, that's not really what it's designed for. That's not really um, the the intent of that statistical instrument. And when you do that, we you see, you know, clinically and also in research, how much people struggle, mm -hmm. right? How much people struggle when they're told their body weight should be X instead of Y and they're, they're forced to shrink to get down to that. It's, you know, creates massive amounts of disordered eating, um, mental health struggles, you know, people mm -hmm. end up really struggling in their relationship with food and their body. And that also has ripple effects to mental health in general, depression, anxiety, low self-esteem. Um, you know, they're they're being weight stigmatized by being told to lose weight. And we know that that puts people at greater risk of heart disease, diabetes, um, early mortality, you know, weight cycling, that which is the result of most attempts to shake your body because mm -hmm. nine, up to 98% of diets and intentional weight loss efforts fail and meaning that you know you can lose weight in the short term but within five years you end up regaining all of the weight you lost if not more mm -hmm. um, and so you know weight cycling is really the norm weight cycling is the almost inevitable outcome of attempts to lose weight and weight cycling itself raises people's risk of heart disease diabetes perhaps um, certain forms of cancer or early, early mortality you know, all of these things that, again, get blamed on higher weight itself, mm -hmm. but that can actually be much better explained by the weight stigma and weight cycling that people in larger bodies face in this culture. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's something that, you know, anytime I find myself talking about BMI, I the response is always so everyone seems to be so shocked. Um, and there's always the question of like, what's wrong with the BMI chart? Why is it bad? Um, and I think it just goes to show how, you know, diet culture and media and just society in general has like normalized this chart in order to 
you know, uh, sell more diet products, um, get more people into the diet culture and into the diet industry. And so I think it's such an important conversation to have because it's something that's not often talked about. Um, and I think it's, you know, the history of the BMI chart is something that a lot of people don't know about. Um, and I think if we're, if people are able to, um, you know, learn the history of the BMI chart, learn everything that you just said, you said everything so perfectly. Um, I think it would be, you know, and we know it would be, uh, cause we've experienced it life-changing and being able to detach ourselves from, this chart, um, that we've relied on for so long. Um, I used to refer to the BMI chart multiple times a week, uh, when I was in my eating disorder and even before my eating disorder, um, because I thought that that was the accurate way to determine my health. And I thought it was, you know, the accurate way to figure out what weight I needed to strive for. Um, and so I think that's why I'm so passionate about educating people on the BMI chart because, we know that it's, it's not accurate and that's not what it was created for. And, um, it's very misleading. And so, um, I think that that's just such an important conversation and thank you for everything you touched on because you touched on such important topics, including weight cycling and the idea that, um, you know, people in larger bodies aren't experiencing these health issues, um, you know, solely because of, their weight, but because of the things that they've gone through due to the size of their body, weight cycling, um, all of the weight stigma, all of the the things that you mentioned, I think that that's also such an important conversation that needs to be had. So thank you for mentioning such important, such important things. Um, one thing I was just thinking of too, as you were saying that was, um, more recent research that's been done on the BMI showing that people are misclassified as quote unquote unhealthy Mm -hmm. by the BMI chart. And so, you know, larger body people are often misclassified as being quote unquote unhealthy when they Mm -hmm. have no cardiometabolic risks actually. And smaller body people can be misclassified using the BMI chart as quote unquote healthy Healthy. when actually Mm -hmm. they have risk factors that are being missed and dismissed because they're smaller bodied. Mm -hmm. And I personally was an example of that, not so much with cardiometabolic risk, but with an eating disorder because when I was in the depths of it, when I, you know, looking back at my behaviors, I could have definitely been diagnosed using the DSM, you know, I think at the time it was the DSM Mm four, um, could definitely have been diagnosed using that. And, you know, with some, you know, eating disorder, not otherwise specified or whatever. Um, and I was really struggling and, you know, my mom was the only, probably the only person in my life, I think at the time who was like, I think there's something up with your eating. Do you have an eating disorder? What's up? What's wrong? Mm -hmm. And I told my therapist at the time that my mom thought I might have an eating disorder. And she said, well, you're not really, you know, you're not thin enough to have an eating disorder. I don't think that's what's going on for you. And so, you know, I was dismissed because I wasn't quote unquote thin enough per the BMI chart because at the time there were these weight criteria for anorexia. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what she was, you know, the therapist was trying to put me in that box and I didn't seem to fit because my BMI wasn't low enough. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that's just one example of how harmful BMI can be for people getting the help they deserve with whatever health conditions they are, physical or mental. Yeah. And I relate to that so much because I experienced something very similar in terms of when I was in my eating disorder, I also wasn't 
quote unquote thin enough, um, or I didn't quote unquote look like I had an eating disorder, um, which was extremely harmful for me and my recovery because I was questioning, oh, is this as bad as I think it is? Um, am I actually experiencing an eating disorder? Um, is this normal? All of these questions, because I was, I, I felt like because I wasn't small enough or because I wasn't, um, you know, looking like I had an eating disorder. Um, I didn't feel like my eating disorder was as bad as that, as it really was. Um, and so I think through my recovery, when I started to really learn about all of these really important things, weight stigma, BMI chart, and all of those things, that's when I was like, wow, this is so harmful and so toxic for people to even question, is my eating disorder bad enough? Um, and to, like you said, not get that support or get that help that they deserve um, in terms of their eating disorder and their relationship with food and their body. Um, because they're questioning, is my eating disorder bad enough? Um, and I think that, you know, that's coming from, you know, myself and being in that position, I know how frustrating it can be. Um, so I think, you know, having this conversation around understanding that eating disorders, they don't have a size, they affect people of all shapes and sizes and talking about why striving for that number on the BMI chart isn't healthy. It's not necessary. It's not accurate. Um, is such, you know, such an important conversation to have. Um, so I guess one last question that I would really love to hear, um, from you is a little bit more about your book. Um, <clears throat> because I actually haven't had a chance to read it yet. It's on my list. Um, starting grad school, I have been, given a huge list of things that I have to read and I wish I could <laughs> do athleisure <laughs> like <laughs> reading again, but, um, mm -hmm. that won't be happening anytime soon. Um, so I would love for you to just give us a little information about your book, um, and also where people can find it because I would love for people to be able to, uh, purchase it. Whoever is interested. Yeah, thank you so much. So yeah. it's called Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating. It is available wherever books are sold. Um, and it's about, you know, this cultural history. There's definitely um, kind of a dissection of diet culture, what it is, how it harms us, um, you know, through stealing our time, our money, our well-being, and our happiness, and all mm -hmm. kinds of other things, too. And it does this in so many insidious ways. And so I really chronicle that in the book of, you know, talking to people who've had their life stolen in all these different ways, um, looking at the science and what it really says about dieting and the effectiveness of diets, weight stigma, weight cycling, the effect of those things, the, you know, fat phobic culture that we live in and how that impacts people and disproportionately impacts people in larger bodies and also people of color, black folks, mm -hmm. indigenous folks, um, people who are disabled, you know, queer people, et cetera. It's, it's really this, um, you know, diet culture is a form of oppression and it's, it intersects mm -hmm. with lots of other forms of oppression and sort of is born out of the same kind of, uh, supremacist framework really. And that is a whole so new conversation. I know. And like, <laughs> we didn't we even to touch the surface of that, <laughs> but such, yeah, such an important yeah. conversation. 
Sorry. Yeah. So it's no worries. No, it's uh, yeah. So we, I definitely, you know, talk about that a lot in the book um, about the history of diet culture. There's a little bit about Adolf Ketelet and his BMI mm -hmm. chart in there. Um, and then I talk about, you know, how you can reclaim those things, your time, your money, your well-being and your happiness through just, you know, letting go of diet culture, rejecting the diet mentality, making peace with food, um, starting to honor your hunger all of the principles of intuitive eating and health at every size and you know what is sort of a way to approach health and well-being and food and movement without diet culture getting in the way like how can you reshape and reimagine your relationship with food and movement um, in a way that is you know rejects diet culture and actually helps you heal and helps you support well-being and so it's really a book for anyone who has um, struggled in their relationship with food or thought that maybe they were they needed to quote unquote eat better mm -hmm. or had an eating disorder or disordered eating. It's it's not for just, you know, people who are um, hardcore disordered eaters or chronic dieters. It's really for anyone who has, you know, wondered about their relationship with food. And I think most people in our society really have. Oh, yeah. So um, you can get it at my website, christyharrison.com slash book. That's, you know, got links to everywhere to find it. But, you know, your favorite bookstore, whether it's, you know, bookshop or your local indie store or one of the big box stores or whatever, it's all there. Yay. I'm so excited to read it. I've, um, I have some friends who have read it and they're like, it's been life-changing, um, mm -hmm. so much good information. And so I'm really excited to dive into that whenever I'm not consumed with school reading. <laughs> um, so one last thing, um, and I would love for you to be able to, um, anyone who's listening, uh, who may be struggling with their relationship with food, um, or an eating disorder or whatever it may be, um, where, what piece of advice would you give them in terms of starting, getting started into that recovery or, um, you know, starting that healing in terms of their relationship with food? Yeah, I mean, such a great question. I think, you know, the first stage is really starting to contemplate, right? Mm -hmm. The, you know, we think about the stages of change. I don't know if, if that's something that you've encountered in your schoolwork, but it's, you know, something that's really a big part of um, nutrition training, but also mm -hmm. really for any kind of behavioral change. You really have to go through the stage of contemplation and then preparation before you actually take action to change something. And so that goes for your relationship with food, just as it goes for really anything else, you know, stopping smoking or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think the the best way to start is to just start gathering information, start learning about diet culture and the ways that it harms us, start reflecting on your own relationship with food and the ways in which that has maybe negatively impacted your life. Um, and so I have a podcast, Food Psych, which mm -hmm. uh, you can find probably wherever you're listening to this where I talk with people about their relationships with food and their paths toward healing and body liberation. Um, and I also answer listener questions about different aspects of healing your relationship with food and moving towards intuitive eating and away from diet culture. So I think that's maybe a good place to start exploring and contemplating. Same mm -hmm. with my book. I think that's a really good tool for exploring these ideas. Yeah. And I think as you explore, there will be you know things that become evident to you, like rules maybe that you're holding on to from diet culture or ways that you're weight stigmatizing yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I think the next kind of step in the process is to start challenging those beliefs and to start challenging those behaviors. And 
you know, it can start really small, right? It can start with, um, you know, I've been like restricting carbs and I'm going to bring back a carb right here at lunch, you Mm -hmm. know, Um, just little ways to start challenging those diet culture beliefs and behaviors and, um, you know, getting help, I think, from a therapist and maybe an intuitive eating and health at every size dietitian Mm -hmm. can be really helpful on this path. You know, I know my own path was so much more winding than it probably needed to be if I had been able to get help from my therapist who, you know, I luckily had insurance coverage through the university that I was Mm -hmm. at at the time and, and she was covered by that. Like, imagine if I had been able to get you know, free therapy mm-hmm. that actually helped me with my eating disorder at the time. I think it would have saved me a decade of struggle. Mm-hmm. And of course, maybe it wouldn't have, you know, I, I wouldn't be here talking to you today and having written the book, I might have gone on to write wildly different things and mm-hmm. had a very different career in life. So I'm, you know, ultimately happy with the way things turned out. But I definitely think that I could have, you know, been saved so much more pain and, um, you know, back and forth in my relationship with food if I had gotten the targeted help that I really needed at the time. So I think that, you know, for people who can afford it, who have that option, who have insurance coverage for um, mental health, which, you know, in the U.S. is is almost everyone now, um, I think it's worth it to seek out a therapist who is really trained in eating disorders and understands intuitive eating and health at every size so that they're not going to have eating disorder treatment that is weight stigmatizing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that contemplation is so important. Um, and I, and I love that you mentioned just taking those small steps. I think that that's honestly the most important part and something that I've noticed a lot with people that I've talked to is like that overwhelming feeling of not knowing where to start, um, or starting and trying to do too much at one time. Um, and then you just, you feel overwhelmed and you feel like, oh, I can't do this, or maybe this isn't the right time. Um, so I find myself saying that a lot to people is like, just do one small thing at a time. Um, and again, this, the same thing that you mentioned in terms of just educating yourself and, um, surrounding yourself with people who are preaching what you, what you want to think, um, and the way that you want to, uh, live. So following people on Instagram, like you and people who are talking about, um, weight stigma and, um, the effects of weight cycling and all of those types of things, I think is really important, especially in, uh, today's day and age (laughs) with the, how, everyone is online and everyone is on social media. So I think that, you know, that plays a a huge role in the way we view ourselves. And I think that by following the right people and surrounding yourself with that information is going to be really helpful. Um, So to to wrap this up, do you mind sharing uh, where we can find you? Absolutely. Yeah. So thank you so much for having me too. Um, And people can find me at uh, christyharrison.com. That's kind of the hub for everything that I do. My podcast is there, my book. Um, You can sign up for my email list where I, you know, share ideas and thoughts on rejecting diet culture and making peace with food. So christyharrison.com is the place. Perfect. And then um, you're on Instagram as well. I'm on Instagram as well. Yeah. I've I've been... um, I've been, you know, taking a bit of a step back from social media these mm-hmm. days, focusing on other projects and also yeah. honestly kind of rethinking whether I want to have a big relationship with social media in mm-hmm. the wake of watching uh, the documentary, The Social Dilemma oh and my gosh, yes. being up on all this stuff, right? It's, yeah, it, I think social media has had a really 
negative impact on our society in a lot of ways. And so mm -hmm. I'm trying to just use it in a more targeted way and kind of not spend a lot of time there. But I yeah. still do post there probably every week still. Um, and on Instagram, it's Christy Harrison, where the first I is a one. So you can okay. follow Perfect. me there as well. And the only reason I mention that is because um, I always look forward to you are always reposting tweets and you're always reposting such amazing quotes. Um, and you. so that's, you know, that's why I mentioned that because I'm like, this could be really helpful <laughs> for so many people. Um, mm -hmm. But amazing. Thank you so much, Christy, for being here. Um, I'll make sure to include everything in the show notes um, so everyone will be able to easily find you. Um, but thank you again for being here and for providing us with such insightful and important information. Um, these are, you know, the types of conversations that I imagined having when I started my podcast. So I'm really, really thankful that you took some time out of your day to um, sit down and chat with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.